All right. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah. Excellent turnout. Thank you guys for, for being a part of that. Uh, it was really, really special for, for me, for John, and I know for Reiko and Patrick. So thank you very much. But now we're, we've heard the music. Now we're going to learn a little bit about the man, the music, and the monsters. Um, my name is Eric Hominick. If you don't know who I am, which is probably most of you, I run this website about Akira Ifkube. It is called AkiraIfkube.org. It is an official website. I work with the late composer's estate to, to manage it and to uh, add content to it, so it is an authorized outlet. Joining me on the panel this afternoon will be Reiko eventually, but she's back there mixing and mingling, but also with me are John DeSantis. And I just want to say that when you wear gray, the whole world knows how hard you sweat. <laughs> Always bet on black. And then we have Patrick Galvan. And Tyler Martin. So the format here is I'm going to do a very broad strokes uh, overview of the composer's life. And then we're going to talk about some of the scores individually. In particular, we are going to, oh, here comes Reiko now. Uh, the stairs are around that way, Reiko. <laughs> We're going to uh, talk about his life, then we're going to talk with Reiko about her experiences with uh, the maestro, and then we're going to be speaking about three film scores, uh, Godzilla 1954, Rodan, and King Kong vs. Godzilla. So let us get started. Akira Ifkube was born on May 31st, 1914 in Kushiro, Hokkaido. Hokkaido is, of course, the northernmost island of Japan. Uh, in Hokkaido, the Ainu people, it's Japan's indigenous population, they are in antiquity, they used to be all over Japan, but nowadays they're mainly located in Hokkaido, northern Japan. And as a youngster, he was, in, he was uh, exposed to their culture, their music, their song, their dance, everything, and he became very friendly. His whole family did friendly with the Ainu at a time back then when, when many ethnic Japanese were still very discriminatory against the Ainu. The Ifkube family was, was very warm and welcoming to them. And as a youngster, he had many Ainu friends. As a kid, he was fascinated by Western classical music, you know, the great composers, traditional Japanese music, tr Japanese folk song, and Ainu music. And listening to all of this type of music, it, it, it made him want to become a musician himself. And, you know, in his mind, I would have liked to have gotten inside of his head to hear what this mixture of Japanese traditional music, Ainu music, and Western music sounded like. You know, but of course we have his scores, so when he wrote music, it's, we can think of it as an amalgamation of these three different traditions. He was so fascinated by music that he bought a violin, or actually asked his parents to buy him a violin, and he had to teach himself. There were no violin teachers in his small town in Hokkaido, so he listened to, to records of the great uh, Zimbalist and Fritz Kreisler, and just by listening to records, taught himself how to play the violin. With his brother Isao and his best friend Fumio Hayasaka, now there's a name you might know because Hayasaka was Akira Kurosawa's composer for the earlier films, Rashomon, The Seven Samurai. They organized music performances much like this in the early 1930s in the capital city of Hokkaido Sapporo. 
And as he was getting better and better as an instrumentalist, he decided that he wanted to become a composer, that he should not just play music, but also write it. So his main point of, of reference, you know, if I'm going to write music, who should, who should I fashion myself after? Igor Stravinsky was number one. And if you're a classical music fan, you may know the Rite of Spring, but I'll bet you, even if you don't think you know the Rite of Spring, you do, because in the Disney film Fantasia, that's the music that is heard during the dinosaur scene, so that's, that's the right of spring. So you can kind of the, 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 the you know, the, the, these chugging ostinati and these, you know, stabbing rhythms and, and things like this all sort of come from Stravinsky, a primitivist aesthetic. Here he is at uh, university. He attended Hokkaido Imperial University between 1932 and 1935. And he was the concertmaster, the head violinist of his orchestra. So he went from teaching himself to play the violin to being the best violinist in his university's orchestra. Though he did not major in music, he actually majored in forestry because at the time, musicians, well, I guess times haven't changed much, musicians can't make a lot of money and it's not very practical. And, and especially his father was against it. It was very feminine to be a musician. You didn't want to do that. It was a, a time of Japanese expansionism and imperialism. Men did practical things where they joined the military. They didn't play instruments. So he loved nature, so he decided to become a forestry officer, and his graduation thesis was about the vibratory properties of wood in order to create new musical instruments. In 1935, he worked as a forest officer in this remote forested area of Hokkaido called Akeshi. Uh, me and uh, Shigatoshi, Reiko's husband, actually found the site where his cabin used to be in a very remote forest. We, we did find it. We were there. He lived a life of almost total isolation in his cabin, and he would compose in his spare time at night. You know, after his duties were done during the day, he would compose at night in his hut by the light of a gas lamp while bears are trying to break into his cabin to get food. He, he would sleep at night often clutching a rifle, afraid that, that bears would, would break in. And this is, it was in this milieu, it's a French word by the way, it was in this milieu that he wrote his first orchestral work, Japanese Rhapsody. During the war, as, as he became better, better and better known as a composer, during the war, the Imperial Japanese government commissioned him to write several pieces of military music for the Japanese government. But that thesis about the vibratory properties of wood that I told you about, well, the Japanese government caught wind of that and said, well, we need this man's expertise as a scientist because at the time, the Japanese government was capturing enemy, or I guess in this case, allied uh, wooden planes and they wanted to reverse engineer the technology on them because planes made mostly out of wood could avoid radar detection. So he was using x-rays and all sorts of chemicals to study the, the, the wooden technology on, on these planes. And unfortunately, what happened was he, during, because of wartime austerities, there was no lead for protective suits, so he actually experienced radiation poisoning quite severely. And that's one thing that's not often brought up is that you know when he's writing films, music for films like Godzilla and Ch Children of... Hiroshima, and so on and so forth, he actually was a composer that experienced radiation poisoning. So, you know, when you hear that prayer for peace in uh, Godzilla 54, there's something very profound happening in that music because, you know, as the, you see the child with the Geiger counter, well, he went through that personally. He became a film composer um, after the war. He moved to Nikko, Reiko's hometown in 1946 and then moved to Tokyo in 1947 and that's where he scored his first film, Snow Trail, which of course uh, has a screenplay co-written by Akira Kurosawa and it was Toshiro Mifune's first film. So Akira Ifukube and Toshiro Mifune share the same first film. 
He scored only one Kurosawa film, Quiet Duel in 1949. He and Kurosawa did not get along well at all. They were very bullheaded artists, and Kurosawa liked a very acquiescent composer. Write, write, write in this style for me. Write in that style for me. And Ifukube said, no, you hire me as the composer. I'll write the music I think is appropriate. Don't hire me and tell me what to do. So it didn't work out after that. And he quickly became one of Japan's most sought-after film composers. He was very busy during the 1950s and the 1960s, certainly. But as we got into the 1970s, he reduced his work on film to focus mainly on writing concert pieces and make a transition into academia. He became, the, uh, he became a professor of composition at the Tokyo College of Music in 1974, and then only two years later became the institution's president. Uh, although he was the president, he, he did continue to teach seminars. In his later years, of course, uh, he, he, he composed no film scores at all in the 1980s, but in 1991 he did return to film scoring for some films you might have heard of, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Here's a rare photo of Akira Ifukube working with the two actresses who play the cosmos in... Um, Godzilla versus Mothra. It's been a long weekend. Dude. Yes, it has been, <laughs> and we're only getting started. So that's that's a that's a great picture of him working with them. Here is a photo of him conducting the score for Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla '93. The man to his left is Satoshi Imai, who's the man who did the arrangement for uh, Symphonic Fantasia Number no. Three that that Reiko played, and Reiko uh, went to the Tokyo College of Music with Mr. Imai. Uh, here, here's, here's a great picture of him. I'm not sure what he's holding. It's something for Godzilla vs. Destroyer, but if it's a, some sort of, I don't know if it's a, it doesn't look like a screenplay, maybe it's a promotional pamphlet or something, but, but there he is holding something with Godzilla vs. Destroyer on it. And then on the evening of February 8th, 2006, Akira Ifukube died in Tokyo at the age of 91. He was in the middle of working on a new piece for, solo for a solo koto called Rhapsodia Shanruru, and he never got to finish it. Reiko Yamada. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Here's a picture of Reiko uh, performing uh, Ritmika Ostinata, the, piece, the first piece that she performed uh, today at the uh, official 100th anniversary concert for the composer in uh, Tokyo. Yeah, the Tokyo Symphony back in 2014. I was, I was there. It was, it was a great... Great concert. It was it was really spectacular. So, Reiko, when did you when did you join the Tokyo College of Music? What year was that? Uh, I forgot exactly, but like something ninety eighty something. Okay. Yeah. So that time, uh, yeah, he was in the president of the Tokyo College of Music. Right, and then you were at the Tokyo College of Music as a piano student. Yes. But then you took his uh, composition seminar. So how did that uh, how did yeah. that happen? Because uh, because of the Ritomika Ostinata, today I play fast piece. Uh, one of my friend who study with Mr. Hikube, he showed me that, that music. And the first time when I listen, I'm not just like impressed. I shocked kind of like really electrically like shock. And I thought, oh my goodness, who this composer is. And I asked him, you know, I really want to meet him. And he started laughing. Do you, you don't know, you know, he's a, you know, our, you know, college president, you know. And also, he has a seminar every Tuesday. 
And then I really want to attend that class and ask my friend to visit present room and then meet it could be a first time. And I just asked him if I can observe the class. And he said, oh, you know, this is for the composition class. You are the pianist, so maybe not interesting. But I said, I never, you know, bother you. I just sitting very corner of the room. I really want to listen every time. You know. Then he said, well, if you like it, then you can come. And then after that, I attend four years the college. <laughs> can you imagine attending four years of, of his classes, his seminars? Reiko says the man was like a walking encyclopedia. He, could, he would start talking about musical things, and then the conversation would meander into manners of the tea ceremony, ethnology, all sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting conversations that you would have in class with him? Oh, like, you know, when he explained the like, form of the composition, sometimes he explained, like, you, you say, like, tea ceremony. Yeah. Because in a tea ceremony, they have some manner. If somebody late, come too late, they had to open the door a little bit and then show face and then just tell, you know, I'm here, but don't bother, and then shut down the door again. And then later come very quietly, and the people like ready, and never bother that feeling. So it's composition is kind of the same idea. You cannot put a new theme suddenly, so it's break the music. Like you know, he kind of you know uh, using some interesting uh, kind of example to tell the really deep things. So. Yeah, and, and here's, here's some pictures of her. So there is uh, Reiko in this uh, first picture on the left, sitting to Mr. Eve Kube's left, and that's his wife, Ai, Akira Eve Kube's wife, Ai, who you, were, you became very close to. Can you talk a little bit about his wife? Oh, yes. Ai uh, is very cheerful, and she does everything for Eve Kube, but she's a lot of talking, you know? <laughs> and she's very sharp, and because she doesn't afraid. Sometimes she really complain somebody because, you know, it's not good music or something like that. But he said every time, oh, don't, don't, don't say that, don't say that. You find, you find every, <laughs> he was really gentle and try to be calm down. Yeah, but, and, uh, she, and she was a ballet dancer, and that's yeah. how they met, because he wrote a, a brief ballet piece in 1940 called Eten Raku, and he was looking for somebody to choreograph it, and it was suggested to him that he meet a young lass by the name of Ai Yuzaki, and they hit it off, and they were married uh, 59 years, I believe, yeah. and she died in 2000. And one of my favorite stories that Reiko told me, an anecdote of one of her conversations with Ai, the composer's wife, I mean, because he was always surrounded by otaku, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a very attractive person for otaku. People always wanted to talk to him. And Reiko told me one time that Ifkube's wife took Reiko aside and said, why is it that only lunatics like my husband's music? <laughs> Well, we'll all think about that one, right? <laughs> and the one thing is actually, you no, know, that I just she quitted her career for after he married, and she did every single day before Ikube uh, wake up. She clean every desk, clean for the composition desk, to, to ready to start, you know, every time Ikube uh, wake up. So she never uh, didn't do it any. Uh, she didn't miss it any. Every single day, she does for her. Yeah, she, was, she was very devoted to him, and that's true. After they got married, she abdicated all of her ambitions in her own life, in her own artistic life, to support her husband. Mm -hmm. 
And again, they were married for 59 years. Here's a very interesting photo. Um, that's Reiko at Akira Ifkube's house. Every new year, on, on New Year's, Ifkube would invite all of the, the big names of the music world to his house for a New Year's dinner. People were talking about people like Toshiro Mayuzumi, um, who else? I, I'm, I'm drawing yeah, up. Akutagawa. Uh, yeah, Yasushi Akutagawa. And, and the Maki. Yeah, exactly. And, and this guy right here, with the cigarette, Richiro Manabe, the composer of Smog Monster and Megalon. Um, there she is sitting right next to Mr. Manabe. That's Minoru Miki next to him, and then um, Shigeyuki uh, Imai. Um, I, I actually met the, the composer that's on the right there, Mr. Imai. Uh, really briefly, do you want to say any words about uh, Mr. Manabe? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I have not much chance to talk to him, but I think she, he was the last uh, student of the Hikube, for the older student. He was very quiet and a little bit stingy, I think. <laughs> yeah, apparently uh, uh, Manabe was, was uh, something of a strange guy, and um, there's some very interesting stories about that. But we won't go into that here. This is not a sewing circle. Here is uh, some photos of, I believe this is your last meeting with him. Is this the uh, last time you yes, met him? Yes, yeah, So this was in 2005, 2006? 2005, Yeah, that's uh, right, 2005. November. Yeah, in November 2005, and he died a few months later in February. So that's Reiko coming to the late composer's house. And it's a shame because the late composer's house no longer exists. It was torn down some years ago, unfortunately. But uh, there she is going to, to meet him at his front gate, and there she is talking to him about uh, Ritmika Ostinata because she was preparing for a performance. He was going to attend her performance, but he unfortunately passed away. Can you tell us a little bit about that last meeting with Mr. Ifkube? Yeah, uh, that time actually Ifkube was very weak, and I have so many questions I like to ask him, but I couldn't ask everything because I see he's, uh, you know, uh, getting really, you know, weak. And then finally I just asked several big questions but he said, oh, Reiko, you, know, you can play any, anything you like. You, know, you can do your way, you know. He's, he, he didn't say particularly. But if I really want to ask, I have really problem playing that part. And he said, oh, well. But he going to have some example. Oh, by the way, I read a book. And that one said this, this is, or some pianist did this way, that way, and it worked well or something. You know, he kind of very naturally giving some idea to think about that part. And actually, that time I got four very important uh, ideas to play the Tomika Ostinato well. Maybe without his you know, suggestion, maybe I couldn't done that part. So, oh, so, yeah. so you found that his, his insights and his explanations were very useful to you to better that's understand it. the music. Very great. Are there any other just interesting stories from your time with him that come to mind, either from being in his seminars or being at his home? Any funny stories, any interesting stories? Because what Reiko talks about is actually, you know, you see him in pictures and he often looks very dour and, you know, sort of not, not, not smiling so much in pictures, but he was a man of, of tremendous warmth and tremendous humor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that side of his personality, his humorous side? Yeah, actually this one I heard about this story from the uh, Ikube's uh, daughter, first daughter, Lei. She said, you know, Ikube is very, very good pretend other people to act. 
And then he's a very good mimic. Yeah, mimic. And then he he is very good friend with uh, Katsu Shintaro. Shintaro Katsu of Zaruichi. Yeah. Yeah, and then every time uh, Katsu call uh, Ikube Sensei, and then uh, Ikube call uh, Katsu Shintaro Shinchan, and then they are very close. And he sometimes uh, pretend that <laughs> So he was, so Ikube would like to close his eyes and mimic a cane and walk, do the sort of little bumbling walk that Zaruichi would do. So he liked to imitate Shintaro Katsu. And um, there was uh, another anecdote Reiko once told me about was somebody said, well, you know, Mr. Ifukube, why do you write such dark music for, for Zaruichi? And Ifukube said, well, if you think about it, a, blind's ma a blind man's world is pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> so great, great humor. Any other, any other stories, any other things that come to mind for you? Even you know, in Japan, people, especially older person, doesn't do the ready first or those things because you know different culture. But Ikube, every time after the class, we go to the elevator. Even uh, freshman, he every time ready first, and then uh, he said, "We are prepare the tea," and then he really said, "Thank you," and you know, I'm really asking you to do it, not like you know, do it because of you are woman. Because your tea is very good, so you know. So he's really, you know, care about you know everybody from you know first freshman to you know very you know composer. No, I you know I've I've known Reiko for for many years now, and I just love listening to these stories that she that she's told me. I mean, again, to have been able to experience four years of that man's company and instruction and tutelage, I think just you know what what an experience. I'm sure you feel very very lucky to have done that. I think so. And especially even uh, during a uh, student, I didn't know much, but after graduate and then go to the other world and then as a working as a musician, his word and his attitude, his philosophy is really helped me to think about or understand anything. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Reiko, for those reminiscences. We're going to segue now into a discussion of the music itself. And so, and of course, Reiko, I want you to join in. If you have any ideas about some of the things that we're talking about, please join in. Okay. So what we're going to do, first of all, is uh, with the panel, the entire group here, is we're going to talk about uh, the music of the first uh, Godzilla film, 1954, a very, very seminal work in, in so many ways. Um, here's an image uh, of the manuscript score by Akira Ifkube. Notice that at the very top in red, he writes in the Russian Cyrillic alphabet, Gozira. Uh, he, had a, he had a very interesting uh, habit of writing titles in various languages and alphabets. For example, the, the, on the score for the Mysterians, uh, he actually refers to the entire film on the manuscript as Mogella, which is clearly a reference to the, the robot monster, but he writes it in Greek throughout the entire, throughout the entire manuscript. So he, he, was, he was a great, he spoke many languages fairly well, actually, too. He spoke English, he was competent in, in French and Russian, a little bit of Italian as well. So here's, uh, here's a piece of the uh, manuscript score from, from Godzilla. John, do you have anything you'd like to say about the, this, the, the entree here? Uh, yeah, what you're essentially looking at right now is what was intended to be the very first theme of Godzilla ever written. This is um, kind of like that bum 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 bum. If my pitch is off, I'm sorry. Um, but it's essentially yeah, the first theme of Godzilla because, as you guys know, like the um, the theme, the main title of Godzilla '54 was meant to be the military theme. That wasn't actually adopted 
uh, as a theme of Godzilla until Terror of Mechagodzilla in 1975. So... Um, this is really, really interesting to me because number one, I just I love seeing what his manuscripts looked like and just kind of knowing that this is what he sat at his desk and just handmade, and this is what went to the podium at Toho Studios in um, in late October of 1954. And um, Eric, uh, so we had talked about that. That orchestra that recorded was actually uh, that was an independently contracted orchestra, right? It wasn't like the national or the the Tokyo Philharmonic or right at the NHK Orchestra. NHK, it was sorry. he he would contract much like John contract musicians. Uh, I think maybe where that comes from is the the concert master on that recording. I can't think of his name right now, but he was also the concert master of the NHK Symphony. So I think that's where that comes from. But it, they were they were independently contracted musicians. And uh, another thing, since we are looking at the manuscript to Godzilla 54, there was always a very interesting anecdote about the, about the, uh, it kind of has to do with the creation of the roar, but um, there's been a little bit of kind of maybe something that got lost in translation over the years. It's, it's been said that because uh, Akira Ifkube used the, uh, a contrabass, uh, and Eric in a few seconds will talk about what kind of condition that was in, but when they were kind of you know, using the glove to to run with uh, pine tar to create the roar. Uh, it's always been said, and, and we think this might have. I mean, we don't know if this came from the composer himself, because sometimes, as Kiwami said, he sometimes he said his dad just liked to tell a good story. But they always uh, there was always something written that that was the only contrabass that was available in Japan at the time, which didn't really ever make any sense to me because there's contrabass in the score, and a contrabass is a very very common instrument. Um, I think what happened was maybe because in some of the manuscripts for 54, you see like he has stuff written for a bassoon, but he also has like optional like contra bassoon. So I'm thinking maybe at the time that that was meant to be a contra, like maybe a contra bassoon was kind of in short order because he had. That's what it was. It was a contra bassoon. Yeah. So. And, and very interesting, by the way, uh, when you hear the original Godzilla roar, roar, roar uh, you know, rubbing, rubbing the, rubbing the, strings with a you know pine or resin covered glove but actually it's like this it's the e string right of the the contrabass yeah yeah the, yeah, the lowest one pulled pulled like that and the person who was actually pulling the string was the composer say ikeno who composed music for secrets of the telegian you know so and uh, yeah so that's that's where that comes from uh, very briefly, and then we'll include Patrick and uh, Tyler here on their thoughts on the score. Um, again, John was talking about the the origins of the Godzilla theme. Well, you know that da 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 da. You know, so that C B A C B A C B A G A B C B A. In solfege, you know, do re mi fa so la. C B A corresponds to do si la, which sounds quite a bit. It, well, in Japanese, they would say do shi ra which sounds quite a bit like gojira. So this was his thinking. So when he settled on it, he said, well, the music literally sings his name, gojira, gojira. <laughs> so, so there you go. And that's, that's a sample of, of the actual uh, Godzilla theme, uh, you know, uh, alternating meter, 4-4 four, four time, 5-4 time. And that's actually a, a screenshot from, not from the Godzilla 54 manuscript, but from the Symphonic Fantasia uh, manuscript from 1983. Patrick and Tyler, you guys are great uh, aficionados of this music. Uh, what are what are your thoughts? Anything that you'd like to talk about regarding the 54 score? 
Ah, uh, well, um, as, um, as somebody who has written extensively about Japanese cinema, I, I, for the record, I write for um, both Toho Kingdom and also for Sci-Fi Wire about Japanese cinema, namely Japanese science fiction. Um, and also being a, I'm very uh, and also somebody who just loves Akira Fukube's film scores in general. Um, I've often been kind of fascinated by um, how he oftentimes uh, would rework his film scores from past works into his Takasatsu scores. You know, Eric mentioned, for example, uh, his very first uh, film score job, Snow Trail, 1947. Uh, Snow Trail actually has a couple of pieces of music in its uh, score that were actually re reused for prominent. Uh, tokusatsu scores, and one of which was re returned for Godzilla, and that would be the very somber, heartbreaking music for the underwater finale, where Godzilla is destroyed by the oxygen destroyer. Um, and not only that, not only did Ifukube reuse that music from Snow Trail, he actually, two years after this film, reused it again for Konichikawa's very first adaptation of the Burmese harp. Um, and what I find interesting, and I, and I think Eric has touched upon this too on, on his website, uh, is that each of the three times where Ifukube used that piece of music, it always seemed to like emphasize you know, a sense of fragility of life. Um, I, I, can't, I, won't, I can't give away, I can't talk about how it applies in Snow Trail because it would give away like the third act, but we all know the ending of Godzilla. And in the Burmese harp, that very somber piece of music is like you know, the main dominant theme of the film. And there's one scene, for example, where um, a Japanese soldier disguised as a monk walks through uh, this the barren, the barren landscapes of Burma just finds all these scattered bodies of soldiers from various countries all around the world. And, and again, with Godzilla, you know, Godzilla is like, you know, at, powerless against this, you know, uh, small but very powerful um, uh, super weapon that ultimately destroys him, and he's, he can't do anything against it. And I just find it interesting that, you know, in all three of these films, uh, Ifukube would use that particular piece of music to emphasize, you know, that even for something as mighty as Godzilla, a walking embodiment of the nuclear bomb itself, is you know even even Godzilla himself is just kind of frail and fragile and doesn't really doesn't really have and even he has kind of like an Achilles heel so to speak, um, and I I do like I do like how he he just kind of like you know uh, he would sort of play he, he he the music is fundamentally fundamentally the same in all three films but he he sometimes changed the orchestration a little bit emphasized a few instruments here and there uh, as the as he reused them um, I think the Burmese harp uses it the best but I think Godzilla comes pretty close uh, as a, as a second runner up it's a it's it's very uh it, it really works for the very emotional finale of the film, which isn't which is not an action action scene whatsoever. It's a very somber emotional finale, and I think it works beautifully in that in that film. Uh, yes, I. Uh, it has been noted that when Ifukube received the script for Godzilla, he sensed in it themes of what he called anti-civilization, and uh, like he sensed that this was a creature that was lashing out against humanity for its uh, uh, getting too big for its britches, so to speak. And this was similar, if not exactly like, it was similar to and complementary to Honda's theme of science uh, being misused and uh, of the forces of nature reacting to this and uh, punishing us for our misdeeds. And uh, he took this sensibility and worked it very clearly into his music. I believe uh, Reiko has described uh, Ifukube's music as inherently primitivist, which is very uh, in tune with this theme. And uh, when you hear something like Godzilla's Rampage, the uh, dun, 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 it's about as raw as it gets. It is about as primal and as uncivilized as music can get. And uh, this 
was Ifukube's thinking for this character. So uh, he just imbued his, his score with these types of sensibilities in a very, very impressive, unique way. And where, uh, sorry, where uh, other composers might have tried to follow uh, the example of, say, King Kong, which was a big influence on this movie, uh, Ifukube isn't interested in taking a page from anyone else's book. He does his own thing. That's what makes his music so special. That's what makes this movie and this score so special. Well, uh, just really quickly, um, I'm sorry. Uh, what you were saying, Tyler, the funny thing about how you described the Godzilla Rampage cue is even despite the fact that it is, as you described, kind of as raw and uncivilized as you can get, it is worth noting that that theme is simply a minor scale. I mean, it, it is a textbook minor scale that just kind of ascends and then descends. So even with that kind of... Uh, that rawness, there is a simplicity in his music that is just inherently yes. beautiful. Yeah, there's there's always structure. He was a, he, he might have been a primitivist, but he was certainly not an avant-gardist. In other words, he thought that music should have very distinct form and structure, and he liked a good tune. He liked a good melody, and his music is, is always very rigorously melodic. Very rarely does it just branch off into... Uh, rhetoric, you know, just fleeting ideas that don't seem to go anywhere. There's always, I think, in his music, a sense of inevitability. It's building towards a, it's going very clearly from point A to point B. And would you say that's very true of his music, Reiko, the structure, the importance of good structure? Mm -hmm. yeah. He really, you know, thinking about the you know, structure, and then uh, he's really careful for, do uh, you remember photograph? Photology? Yes. Those things. Homology. Yeah. So he's really interesting because he liked composition, not only on a music score. Very white paper. He liked several uh, themes or some idea and a brief, and then thinking about the structure and then put together. When he started writing, his head has already has idea about the structure and everything. Yeah, in fact, there was uh, one quote by him that he said that when you're writing a piece of music, you have to know what it is that you're going to write. You have to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write a symphony, I'm going to write a concerto, I'm gonna do this or that. He said it's the same thing like an architecture. An architecture, mm -hmm. an architect, if he's gonna build a bridge or if he's going to build a building, has to know what he's sitting down to start building. So he, that, was, that was an interesting quote by him, uh, equating the writing of music to architecture in that sense. Here's a great photo. This is him uh, personally conducting the uh, children. It's, a, it's, a all, it's at the Toho Gakuen School of Music. It's an all-girl all choir there. They were students. And this is actually him conducting the, the famous prayer for peace uh, scene. Uh, you know, there's so much misinformation about not only him, but his score to this film out there that, you know, he compose the score in one week without seeing any footage of the film. I don't know what he's looking at there. <laughs> but he was, he was writing music during the film. He actually worked on that score for several months, as it turns out. He started, I believe, in July and finished it close to the end. But uh, yeah, there, there he is actually conducting the all-girl choir. Now, we've got something very interesting for you now. There, in the Godzilla manuscript, there is a Q, Q10. He had originally written music for uh, right before Godzilla's reveal when they're all running up the side of the mountain and then Godzilla's head pops up. He originally scored music for that scene and it, it is extant in the manuscript. He never recorded it. 
I don't, we don't know why. We, you know, maybe it was a discussion with Honda. You know, the scene works better with music, or I'm sorry, without music. But, but there it is. And um, John did something really, really cool. Actually, John, Pat, all, all of them made some sort of con contribution to this. John uh, used a software to reconstruct the cue, and Patrick added it to the scene so we can see what the scene would have looked like with the music that was written for it that was uh, ultimately rejected. So let me cue this up. And uh, it's, it is worth noting that this is by no means like a perfect fit, but... Um, yeah, it's, 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 not a perfect, it's not a perfect fit. Um, we, John did, he, he, he did it verbatim, so I don't know if there was going to be any sort of... Well, and the interesting thing about it is I, I think, if I remember correctly, there is a tempo mark on that cue, which most of his cues in the movie did not have tempo marks, which was strange because he would just kind of conduct in free time to the movie. Um, so, yeah. So here it is. Nothing else. I, 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 think, I think we'll, while John's securing that, we'll, we'll hopefully come back to that. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the music for uh, Rodin here. So in 1956... Uh, Akiri of Kube wrote the music for uh, Rodin, and here is a uh, sample from the, the manuscript score. Uh, notice here that at the top in red pencil, he uses uh, the Latin alphabet in order to write the name of the monster, and he writes it as La Don. So um, I'm not sure, you know, that was perhaps his own personal transliteration of the, of the uh, katakana, you know, Radon. So here's a, a piece from the, the introduction there. Um, Patrick, Tyler, you, what are your thoughts on the score from, from Rodin? Very distinct, full of character. Uh, I think it was very nice to hear it in conjunction with the Mysterians uh, last night, courtesy of Maestro DeSantis and his orchestra, uh, because uh, there, there are clearly distinct entities, but the two scores uh, have enough commonalities that I sort of think of them as sisters. When I think of one, I always think of the other. Uh, like in terms of tonality, orchestration, overall sound, they feel very, very similar. Uh, they were written around the same time and uh, use a lot of the same sort of concepts. And I would like to uh, say something about... Uh, the uh, Rodin flies to Sasebo, the dun dun da dun da 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 dun dun, which starts, it builds in much the same way as the storm scene on Odo Island. Uh, the music is quite different, yeah, but I it moves in a very similar way, uh, building into a sort into a, a frenzy, uh, like a, a panicking frenzy uh, that very much recalls the, the storm music and the panic music from Godzilla. And uh, the ending cue, which is in the film, uh, is absolutely the, the, it's a narrative sucker punch because you don't realize until this point that these creatures are tragic and sympathetic characters. Uh, it follows the precedent set by King Kong and then by Godzilla by presenting these characters as suddenly, oh my goodness, this is so very sad. These creatures, these mighty creatures are dying. The one has succumbed to the flames and the other dies attempting to save its mate. And uh, Ifukube drives this home magnificently. Uh, you would not expect this kind of feel from an ordinary monster movie uh, in terms of storytelling and in terms of scoring. And it, 
it's really a punch to the gut and is very emotionally affecting. Uh, Rodan is, in, in my opinion, one of the two or three best scores Akiri Fukube wrote for cinema. Um, and, it's, and it's certainly his, one of, probably his most dark and brooding and disturbing score in a lot of respects. Um, especially a lot of the stuff from very early on involving the Megan Nulon is very, when, the, when the, uh, the police officer and those two guys are going through that uh, sh flooded mine shaft and you just hear, and, and he, you hear the dun, dun, dun on the, on the piano, which Ifukube did quite often actually. He liked to use those, those piano, what do you call it? Gomiti? Yes, thank you. Just ostinato. Yeah, I, I don't have the, the musical terminology. And in fact, you can do, see but. it right here. This uh, the, He used two pianos in Rodin, and these, these uh, vertical bars down the two staffs. Because you, you saw Reiko doing this earlier, and, and Patrick, smashing down on the, the lower end of the piano with the elbows, gomiti in Italian. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know if anyone was up high last night. Could you see the, the pianist at Kaiju Crescendo? Yeah, he, he liked his gomiti, Ifukube did. Okay, great. Um, Patrick, was there anything else you were saying? I was just going to mention very briefly, to, to kind of continue off a point I made about Godzilla, is that you know, um, this, this score also has a piece of reworked music from Ifukube's uh, film scoring debut, Snow Trail. Uh, the famous Get Rodan music, you know, that actually was the original, that, that a very primitive form of that was actually the main title opening cue for Ifukube's very first film score, Snow Trail. Um, and and it, it just, it just, it works, it was very interesting in that film for its opening credits to, to sort of like you know, set up this kind of like, you know, uh, bank heist robbery um, prologue, but in Rodan for the for the supersonic flight, it really just builds the sense of like real energy as the fighter planes struggle to catch up with Rodan. He's, he's like, it's like soaring through the air at supersonic speeds. It's a, it's a marvelous piece of music, and I just think it works so wonderfully in that film. And I'd say it works it works even better here than it does when Ifukube reused it for the King Ghidra film in the 90s. It's just it's and it's just fantastic. It takes on a completely new aspect in Rodan. Yeah. It worked well the first time, and it's even better in Rodan. Mm -hmm. And I'd just like to say, honestly, about Rodan, uh, that was probably one of my personal favorite scores that we performed last night at Kaiju Crescendo. I couldn't wait to do that one. And um, it, uh, the, the cue they were talking about, Rodan flies to Sasebo. Um, one of our cello players, Rich Lukes, is in the audience. He's a Godzilla fan. Um, Rich, we had a little bit of fun trying to get those time signatures, that 4, 8, and 11, 16 alternation. Akira Ifkube. So, so, John, how do you conduct that? What's the... Well, I was doing it wrong. I was doing three equal beats on the 11, 16, which is 12, 16. So um, it's basically like, you know, dun dun da dun it's interesting to try and get that down, but I think I think we pulled it off pretty good. We worked on it a lot, uh, just because it, it is. It, thank you. Uh, thank you. It, it it's it's so deceptively simple. It sounds it sounds very simple, but it, it's just amazing how even it, like I like in his simplicity, there's there's little 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 tricks and trip ups if you're not careful sometimes. So. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and just I, uh, I think Rodan is probably the best example of a companion score to Godzilla Fifty Four, 
And I would say like an expansion, just kind of taking the 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 really uh, the more darker ideas in that score and just kind of expanding on them. Uh, I think more so than probably any other score of the '50s. I think Rodan and Godzilla '54 pair very well, especially because uh, Rodan represents an evolution of that style. Yeah. Well, while well, well, we've got a sound tech guy here, let's try this again. So we're going to uh, backtrack just slightly and show you what the uh, Godzilla's appearance would have looked and sounded like with the original cue reconstructed by John, added to the clip by Patrick, and made viewable today on this laptop courtesy of Tyler. So let's have a look and a listen. <laughs> One quick correction: um, only the only that swell that you just heard, kind of really uh, cheesy sounding, was the synth arrangement. I did the f bulk of that cue um, was orchestrally recorded in 1992 for a box set called King of the Monsters. There is, I think, the tenth disc in that set is a, a series of re-recordings. There's like a Super X suite from '84 uh, and Bailante. There's a suite from Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and Godzilla vs. Mothra, and there's a Godzilla 54 suite, and that's actually where that comes from. And for years, like, I never, I would always listen to that, and I never understood what that was. I was like, this sounds like the storm, the Odo Island storm music, but this is different. And like I said, just that one night where I was like, I was looking through that, and I, I was like, Eric, you got to call me right now. You're not going to believe what I just found in this manuscript. And I was like, oh, that's an unused cue. That's amazing. So what do you think? Does it work better with or without music? Actually, I think, without? I, I have to say with it, actually. I think it, uh, it, it's, you know, it's sort of, it, uh, it's rising as they're rising up, and it's almost, it, it just kind of ratches a tension. Yeah, it, it carries, and, and it's, it, 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 uh, it's redolent of the Odo Island. So I actually think that it's, it's quite effective. And in later years, uh, Akirif Kube said that he thought that that scene he, he reviewed the film and said he thought that there should have been music in that scene. He, he didn't think that it played as well silent. In the remaining time that we have, we've got about 12 minutes left, I run a tight ship. We're going to talk about uh, the music of King Kong versus Godzilla now, um, one of his great scores here. Here's a, uh, this is the only photo that I know of, of Akirif Kube and Ishiro Honda together. Um, and in this uh, picture, he's uh, seen there, uh, on the right, of course, uh, you recognize Honda-san. He's in his, in his uh, trademark hat there, uh, discussing the score. 
Here's a great photo of the composer that same year sitting in his, it's such a moody, beautiful photo. And notice that in the foreground, he's got the script for King Kong versus Godzilla sitting on his desk. Um, again, he composed these scores, not looking at the film, knowing nothing about it until, you know, one week after. No, this is, this is not true. It's, uh, we can see this right here, but I, this is one of my favorite photos of him in, 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 in his music room. It's just, it's, it's very moody. Uh, he's got a smile on his face. He loved always being photographed with a cigarette. And uh, yeah, I think that's just a fabulous photo. Uh, here is a, uh, a sample from the, the, the manuscript here. Um, yeah, the main title. So um, you can see right here. Right? Um, what's very interesting about that is that he took a lot of care in writing music. Uh, for many years, it was said that the, the, the chant, the Faroe Island chant in King Kong versus Godzilla was in a South Seas dialect. And that was the, the, the terminology that was used for many years in anything written about the film. If you go on YouTube, if you, I don't know, some years ago, there was some cockamamie translation, the, the devil of the South Seas. Or the, you know, some, someone said that they had translated it and uh, you know, a bloody maiden sacrifice and all this kind of stuff. It's it's that I don't. Whoever translated that was uh, was pulling a fast one on you because uh, the lyrics are uh, a real language. It's called uh, Monoalu, and it's a language that is spoken primarily on an island in the Solomon Islands, because in the film that's where King Kong is from, on an island called Faru. So what the composer did was when he was assigned the film, he read the script, we have photographic evidence of that, and he saw that in the film, Kong is on a fictitious island in the Solomon chain called Pharaoh. So a very, very thoughtful man. He could have just written nonsense syllables for the Pharaoh Islanders to chant, but what he did was he consulted a, a book called the Monoalu Folklore by a guy called Gerald Camden Wheeler, a book published in 1926, and he used actual words from songs that he had collected during an, an ethnological uh, expedition to the Solomons, I think in the late 19-teens, early 1920s. And you can see right here on, on this one song, you, this is the, I have a copy of the book, this is right from the page, and you can see the words right here. Aseke onaroi, samoaike, keletenake, it's right there. And there's even translations for, for the words. Uh, this is a song about a canoe race. So, yeah, go on YouTube, but you know, you can see, you know, like, yeah, does, does anyone have the lyrics of the song? Yeah, man, it's right here, the devil of the South Seas. It's a little bit more. A little bit more like that, and here, here are some other, uh, some other examples from from that book. Um, and Eric, uh, just really quickly, if I may add, I was just double checking with Patrick to make sure that I had my actors correct. But I believe in, in King Kong vs. Godzilla, Ikio Sawamura plays the the I think is the witch doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, you hear him like right after they get done with their smokes and stuff, and the lightning crashes, and then they they get they get scared back into doing. Um, you know, their, their songs for King Kong, 
you know, you can hear Ikkyo Sawamore, his very distinct voice, and he's like, but he's actually, if you listen very closely, he is he is saying like those words. So Akira Kube worked with him. It sounds like it might have been post production overdubs, but either way, Akira Kube definitely sounds like he had him in the studio reading some of this text to kind of go along with the film. Just for the record, Sawamore is the actor from Destroy All Monsters who finds the the orb in the stream that he brings to the police station, for those who don't know. Many other such films as well. Yeah. And uh, uh, just as a quick note, it has been alleged that in Space Amoeba or Yogg, Monster from Space, the uh, native music from this film is reused. It is reused. It has been alleged that it is the same recording with the pitch altered. Uh, I think Eric can verify that that is not the case. Uh, it's a slightly different arrangement with uh, completely new text. Uh, however, uh, in that film, when the native chief goes to placate Gezera as he's attacking the village and he's bowing down to him, he sings a combination of the two uh, main chants heard in this film, the Atipa Ariroi and Asi uh, Anaroi as he's bowing down to them. Yeah, in Space Amoeba, I tried researching that, and I, I think that uh, there, there, there's no, there seems to be no linguistic basis for Space Amoeba. I think it was just syllables invented by the composer. But for example, in uh, Veron, the, the chant Veron, that's, that's, um, that's a, a reworking of the Pali language. Pali is the liturgical language of, of Buddhism. So he uses some Pali words, uh, P-A-L-I, that's how you spell it, Pali words with some invented syllables. And in, um, what was the one we were talking about? Oh, uh, Mu Empire, um, Etragon. Uh, for the, the Mu Empire chant, uh, my linguistic research uh, very, very strongly suggests that he used uh, African languages. And Tyler brought this up to me at dinner the other night, and it's something that never dawned on me. There's a throwaway line in the film where they say, Mu is off of Africa. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, with my research, yeah, the... Uh, it appeared that he was, I can't remember the names of the two or three languages that he sourced, but, but that says something about his thoughtfulness, is that he wanted to, for, for King Kong versus Godzilla, you know, he didn't want to write just any music. He actually did quite a bit of linguistic research to give the chant an actual authenticity. And that says quite a bit about his, his work ethic as a composer. In the remaining five minutes we have, does anyone have any uh, final comments, either about the score to this film or about Yves Kubey? Reiko, do you have any final thing you'd like to say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, excellent. excellent. Did, did, did you have anything you yeah, wanted? No. Okay, okay. Well, I'll, we'll, we'll take some questions if anyone's got any questions. Right. Yes, yeah, sir, right there. Do you know anything about Koichi Sugiyama, composer? No? Yeah, um, I, I don't know to what extent they had a relationship, but, but you know, their styles are very, very different. You know, Sugiyama, of course, that score is criticized for being a little too... American, a little too uh, derivative, Superman, you know, this Jaws. sort of a thing. Jaws, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that um, it, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't seem like they would have much of a relationship. I don't think they did, but I think philosophically and artistically they would have been too far apart to have any association. I think his criticism was the fact that he said uh, for the Republic of Seradia, like the, the Koichi Sugayama wrote like like Eastern European style music, and he just didn't understand it. Yeah, among other things, Akira Ifukube was an ethnomusicologist, so he had very, uh, he was he was very well aware of 
how to give musics from certain traditions authenticity. Any other oh, questions Matt? here? Uh, right there. Oh, uh, Matt. Yeah. Sorry. My major. Oh, I, I wouldn't say that I have any influences because I'm not. I'm not a musician per se. Um, you play the my, bagpipes. I do. Quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do play bagpipes. Um, I, I arranged the Godzilla theme for it once. Um, I, uh, uh, my other favorite composer is uh, Finland's uh, Jean Sibelius. Yes! Eläkön Sibelius, eikö niin? Herra Keskivari. Oikein hyvä. Let's finish. Um, but I, I love Fumio Hayasaka, Igor Stravinsky, Modest Mussorgsky. Right there? Yes, sir. Loved it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been a fan of Bear McCreary for many years now, probably going back to like when he, when he did Battlestar Galactica. And, uh, you know, I love his scores to, to Walking Dead. He's one of the, the better, he was one of the better TV composers out there. And uh, the funny thing was, um, I was working to try and get his theme to perform at the at Kaiju Crescendo. And he and I had some back and we were talking about it. And, um, uh, wasn't able to wasn't able to secure it, but um, he actually sent me vi some very nice messages and was congratulating me. Like he he tends to hit like on my stuff a lot on Facebook, which is kind of cool. But he he said he 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 basically said you know I I think what you're doing is great. He's like good luck, you know you're a torchbearer and all that stuff. And I was like that's very nice. But he he's he's a he's a really really cool guy. He yeah. like we have several mutual friends in L.A. So like he's. He's just a, a wonderful, cool guy, and he's a fan like us. And I think you can tell in his scores, like his score to the movie, he just there's a lot of love in there. And uh, and the composer's son was actually Kiwami San was actually very pleased with how Bear McCreary handled his father's music. So uh, we, we we reported that back to Mr. McCreary, and he seemed to be very happy about that. Yeah, right there. One more question. Oh, yes. Well, he never wrote opera. He wasn't interested in, in, in writing opera, but he actually wrote a series of ballets. And in fact, uh, one of Reiko's, uh, she's got some CDs for sale back there, by the way, if you didn't see. Uh, she did the first ever recording um, of a ballet that he wrote in 1950 called Fire of Prometheus that was uh, based on Greek myth. Uh, at the time, there was only a two piano version that the composer made. And Reiko and, and uh, Patrick Godin, who, who was here, did the first ever recording of that. A few years later, they did find the manuscripts. Okay, guys, if you have any other questions for us, we'll be here. Come talk to us. Come say hi. We, we can talk about this stuff all day. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.